0: If you would, open up your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we will be in verses 12 to 19 this morning. Uh, As we get ready for Easter, we need to remember that this is the beginning of Holy Week. And Holy Week, uh, it begins very triumphant. Jesus enters into Jerusalem and And He's come as the conquering King, but not necessarily the King we expected. And as the week goes on, it gets harder and harder for Jesus until eventually that Thursday evening becomes the darkest moment of His life. And Friday, even as we will observe in our Good Friday service, we will see that the Christ was crucified. Saturday is essentially the... The day of silence, where we let death actually speak, knowing what the wages of sin is, but yet, we need to remember all week, Sunday's coming. The resurrection's coming. And as we will look at this morning, we are looking at Jesus' triumphant entry uh, into Jerusalem. And so you see this reading in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out into the streets to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, he found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. God's people said, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the privilege, not just of singing your word and praying your word and seeing your word and baptism, but also hearing your word proclaimed. And it is your word proclaimed. So we ask that you would give us the ears to hear. And that we would look to Christ seeing that he really is the king we need. Even though not necessarily the king we wanted. And as we see him, would you shepherd our hearts? Shepherd us in our suffering. Shepherd us in our sin. Shepherd us in our pursuit after him. And would you help us to be enamored with him? And that we would leave here differently, living for his glory. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. In 2012, uh, in the fall, I was getting ready to play uh, one of my football seasons for Tulane University. And it was not the season that I expected. It's not the season that I wanted. Uh, The season before was a lot better of a season. And I'm coming into this year and I'm beginning to think the NFL is actually in, in, in real grasp here. But then that entire year went totally different from what I expected. It's not what I wanted, but it's actually the very thing I needed spiritually. Because it was in the hardships of that season that the Lord was chiseling down my idolatries of wanting to be this great football player because he wanted my heart. And he wanted to bring me to him. And it was in that season where he made things very uncomfortable, but yet he showed me the glory of Christ. You see, that story is similar to a lot of our stories. We all have our plans, and especially when you're in college, you have your plans. I'm going to graduate in this amount of years, and I'm going to get this internship, have these friends, and I'm going to then get this job. Just wait. Doesn't always go exactly to plan. And lots of times, the things that we want aren't always the things that we need. And the things that we need aren't always the things we want. But God knows what we need. And actually, in, in these seasons of life, that's actually a microcosm of the gospel, because Jesus Christ was not the king we wanted. But he's the king we needed. And we see that here, and as we go through these, these, these scripture verses here, and as we see this real-life event from 2,000 years ago, we're going to see that this is the king that we didn't want, but it's the exact king we needed. And so I want to ask three questions of you this morning. First off, are you the crowd or are you the confused or are you the covetous? First, are you the crowd? Look at verse 12. Love how this starts off. It just says the next day. And as you read the next day, you need to say, okay, well then what happened before this? And you look up in your word and you see that Jesus has risen Lazarus from the dead. And this great miracle that Jesus did when he, he, there was a dead man who had been dead for days. And he raised him up merely by his word. It was incredible. And a matter of fact, this miracle that Jesus did, it, It had been not the first miracle, but many miracles. You see, for years, Jesus has been teaching. He's been healing. He's been forgiving. And he's even risen someone from the dead. And all this buzz that's happening here, people are getting incredibly excited. And I want you to kind of think about that, if you can, with a holy imagination of how exciting this would be as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Because this is no ordinary dude. Right? Right? You don't just see these things every day. You see, matter of fact, it was so uh, interesting and controversial. You see, even right before this in verses 9 through 11, you see that large crowds were gathering around Jesus, but then even some wanted not just to kill him, but even kill Lazarus. You see, historically, this also tells us something very interesting. Because it was over 150 years before this, that there was this event called the Maccabean Revolt. And the Maccabees, it was their family name, it was was several people who rose up when the Jewish people were in bondage and they were oppressed. And they rose up politically, physically, and they overcame their conquerors, not for a long time, but for a season. And that moment, the Maccabean Revolt, was a huge moment in the history of the Jewish people because they were longing for the time when they would have true freedom. And that's how they wanted it. So I want, you to, I want you to kind of think about this. Think about the excitement that would be here. For the past over 150 years, you've been waiting for the true revolt, the true deliverance to happen ever since you saw something of a, of a physical, political, uh, I guess, sign of it earlier. In matter of fact, what's interesting is one person says that five or six of Jesus' disciples plus two of Jesus' half-brothers, they had names that were after the Maccabees and that it strongly suggested that Jesus ministered in a region that cherished the national heroes of Israel as a proud people under foreign rule, hoping for ultimate deliverance. Imagine this. The people are beginning to think, here it is. This is the time when we will finally overcome our oppressors. This is the time when we will finally see Israel back at the top like the days of King David. And you can already begin to see that in this historical context, they're going to misunderstand who Jesus is. They're going to misunderstand why he has come Because the stories that they had heard their whole life as they began to think about their names were stories about how one day there would be this merely earthly political deliverance. But Jesus is so much greater than that. It was also the time, you see it in verse 12, they had come to what? The feast. What feast is this? This is the Passover feast. And at a couple of these feasts, what would happen is that All the Jewish people around the world, if they could get there, they would travel to Jerusalem to observe the, these feasts. And the Passover feast was the greatest of all of them. And you remember why. Because it was thousands of years before this that God had passed over Egypt. And remember, God's people were in bondage. Does that sound familiar to where the Israelites are right now? They're in bondage. And God said, look, my wrath is coming down upon you. And it'll either be you who suffer, or the firstborn of your house who suffers the wrath of God, or the lamb who you will sacrifice. And so the lamb, the blood of the lamb would be painted over the doorposts of the homes, and when God saw the blood, he would have mercy. And he would keep going. So this feast was celebrating this more and more and more. And actually, around this time, it is estimated that some two million people would gather in Jerusalem for this feast. Think about it this way. Think about how big Stillwater gets during homecoming. It literally would be 20 times the growth of that from where Jerusalem was normally populated to what it would be populated as. It was a huge event. And the biggest story of this feast is this guy, Jesus. And so you can begin to think, is this finally the time? The superpower of the world, Rome, They're not going to stand a chance because now our time has come. That's what they're beginning to think. They come out to meet him. You see that at the end of verse 12, it says they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and look at it. It says they went out to meet him. Now, that looks very normal in the English. But actually what that's getting at in the original language is that they're going out to meet someone who is of royal political dignity. It's not just, hey, let's go check this out. It was the gathering of someone who's very, very important. This is different. It's the official welcoming of someone who might bring deliverance. And as they're coming out to meet Jesus, what do they bring with them? They bring with them branches of palm trees. Remember, this is not in Florida. Uh, So you got to ask the question, uh, what does this mean? Here's what palm branches were. They were symbols of victory. They would be bringing out these palm branches. And imagine if you were one of these people who's come to the Passover feast. And you're so excited. Maybe maybe it's this. Maybe you're 12 years old and this is the first time you've come with your dad. And there's all this stir, there, there's all this commotion about this man Jesus. And it's, it's almost like the best way I can picture it is it's like it was in New Orleans after the Saints won the Super Bowl and downtown is flooded with people and you're just like packed in there like this and people are tossing out these t-shirts. The Saints have won the Super Bowl. I mean, that was the gospel, you know, then. <laughs> and they're packed in there and these palm branches are being passed out. And you begin to hear whispers of, this is the king. This is the one who's come to save us. That God will finally bring deliverance for his people. We read this earlier in our call to worship in Revelation 7 verses 9 through 10, where it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. It's a symbol of victory. You see, as they brought these palm branches out to meet Jesus, they were crying out. Now, we love to sing, and I'm not going to sing for you, don't worry. We love to sing Hosanna, and it sounds very very good, beautiful, harmonic, or whatever words you want to use, music people, correct me. But when this word for crying out, this word in the, in the book of John is actually only used in two other places. When Jesus cries out to Lazarus saying, come out. And it's also used later on this week when those same people would say, crucify him. Crucify him. This Phrase for crying out is a war cry. And you can imagine the energy that you would have here. Packed, remember, you're, you're, you're packed in here with people and you're trying to raise up your, your arm to raise those palm branches and they're crying out, Hosanna, which means save us. Please, save us. What's interesting is that this is a direct quote from Psalm 118. And what's the big deal about that? Here's here's the big deal. Because as you would go to the feast of Passover, you would sing some of the psalms. You would sing Psalm 113 all the way through Psalm 118. And Psalm 118, verse 25 to 26 says this, Save us, we pray. That's where you get Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. You see, this psalm, once again, is echoing that they expected a great deliverance. You see, let me just make this side note here. You cannot understand the New Testament unless you also understand the Old Testament. The New Testament, as one of my seminary professors used to say, the New Testament is just the Old Testament story retold. It's all one story. But if you're not careful, sometimes you can misunderstand the Old Testament. And when you do that, like these people did, you will misunderstand who Jesus is. Do you know what's interesting here? Jesus never does this. Quiet! Don't say that about me. He never says that. Never shakes his head. Never says, well, that's not quite the theological truth. You know, he doesn't do that. He accepts it. Do you know why? Because he is the king. He is the king who's come to bring victory. He's not necessarily the king that they were exactly picturing, but he is the king. He is the Passover lamb. He is the one who has come to bring a great exodus. You see, he never denies any of this. And here's the irony. The irony is that later this week, they were so happy to have this great king. And later, because they don't don't like him as the type of king he's trying to be, They'll crucify him for it, and above his head will be the charge, and it says, the king of Israel. What kind of victory do you expect Jesus to bring? That's often the case today. We, we still misunderstand Jesus just like they misunderstood Jesus. We can very much be like the crowd. The kind of victory we want Jesus to bring is some sort of political victory or environmental victory or cultural victory or psychological victory or social justice victory but you're going to be really disappointed in jesus if you want that right now you'll be really disappointed in jesus if you want that to match exactly the ways of the world jesus is a king and he's come to bring victory but he's going to do it his way you see the roman oppression of the jewish people as hard as that was it was merely a physical picture of a spiritual reality Because sin was the greatest enemy. Satan was the greatest king that was oppressing them. Death was bound for them. And that's what Jesus came to defeat. We don't like hearing this. And here's what one New Testament commentator, uh, Kenneth Bailey, says. In a situation of political and economic oppression, people naturally want salvation, but from what? The salvation they seek is deliverance from their oppressors. He goes on to say, Any prophet who wants to talk about sin and salvation with a community of people under occupation, they already have these words defined for him or her. The concept of sin is shaped by what people are enduring from their oppressors. And the word salvation is used to express their longing to be free from that oppression. For such a community, there's little space in the mind to tolerate anyone talking about its own sins and its own need of salvation from those sins. An oppressed community perceives its own faults as dwarfed by the enormity of what what it is suffering from others, and any discussions of its own sins will be heard as belittling the harsh world in which they live. It takes a brave man or woman to tell the community, That it needs salvation from its own sin. What is he commenting on when he says that? Here's what he's commenting on. What Jesus' name means. Jesus' name means that Yahweh will save. What kind of king did you expect? Because the way that the world's promoting things right now, whatever that salvation is, and there's so many different variations of it, you need to look at the salvation that Jesus brings. You see, I remember the time when I was in college and I went to, uh, I won't name their names, they're great people. But I remember one time I went to some of our trainers and uh, I was feeling really sick and they were like, here, just take some Advil. And we were all pretty sure that the Advil was just a placebo effect, like it just did nothing. And I remember taking this Advil and I was like, I was like it's been three days and I just feel horrible. So I ended up having a friend take me to the ER and I get checked in. Turns out I had strep. So in other words, I had a bad diagnosis and didn't have the right treatment. And until I had a correct diagnosis, then I had the correct treatment. Here's the thing, my friends. What is the diagnosis for you and me? The diagnosis for you and me is that we are sinners. And that sin will lead to death. And that we need a great king, a victorious king, to defeat sin. Because sin is what causes problems in the world. Sin is your greatest problem. What is sin? Here's what John Piper says. It is the glory of God, not honored. The holiness of God, not reverenced. The greatness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought, The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The commandments of God, not obeyed the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. And that's our greatest problem. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And sin in my heart and your heart will be what will lead to death Politically, environmentally, culturally, psychologically, justice, relationally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Sin is our biggest problem. But that's what Jesus came to defeat. These people didn't quite understand that. And see, we need to be reminded that it's easy to be a Christian when it's easy. And it's hard to be a Christian when it's hard. It's easy to be a Christian whenever things are going well politically, socially, ethically economically and providentially it's easy in those seasons it's easy to stand with the crowd and wave the palm branches when everyone's around you and you're hardly noticed it's hard to do it when everyone else has abandoned you you see we talk about or as luther talks about the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross the theology of glory is believing in the gospel because it benefits us mostly it's not really about god in other words We see this today in that you can want to be a part of the church and be around Christians just because it's advantageous of you. Maybe it's just in your business. You like coming to church because it gives you very good connections with other people, but you're not really interested in Christ. It's easy to be a Christian when it's easy. It's hard to be a Christian when it's hard. It's hard to be a Christian whenever society is starting to reject the ethics that you hold. It's hard to be a Christian whenever everyone else around you is saying, crucify him it's hard to be a christian whenever it seems like god is not providing for you you see but god uses those seasons to grow you in your faith it is essential that you grow in those times i've given this illustration before but it's often like when you go to the gym and you get on the pull-up bar and you start doing pull-ups and then your hands begin to get tired and it feels as if gravity is never more real than in that moment. And gravity is pushing you down and you're just trying to get one more, you're just trying to hold on to the bar. And it's actually as you feel so stressed in your hands and you feel like you can't do another, do you know when you're getting stronger in that moment? How do you get stronger in your faith? Not when things are easy, but often when things are hard. Are we the crowd? You see, we need to remember that Jesus is not necessarily the king we wanted, but he's the king we need. Are you confused? That's another question we need to ask. Look at at verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Sitting on a donkey's colt. And it says his disciples. They didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified. Then they remembered. Remember Jesus for a while now. Has been telling his disciples. I will be crucified. Like I, I'm going. I don't know how much how clear I can make this to you. I'm going to die. And even at one point Peter says. Far be it from you. That's when the moment Jesus says. Get behind me Satan. Jesus has. Shown and prophesied to these disciples, I'm going to die, but fear not, I'm going to rise again. Because that's what you need. But they were confused about it. They didn't didn't quite have the understanding there. And even with the resurrection of Lazarus, they didn't quite understand it. They wanted Jesus to be this, this earthly only deliverer. But notice what Jesus does. Look at verse 14. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Why does it say that? Here's why it says it. Because Jesus Christ is gripped by the scriptures. He is gripped by God's word. I was talking with Helena earlier, and we were were talking about a situation in her life where uh, she was talking with someone who was... Uh, talking about how many different ways you can come to know the Lord and so many different ways from Scripture, but this person was trying to say, well, I don't want to put God in a box. Well, here's the thing. You might not want, want to put God in a box for how you can know Him, but God puts you in a box for how you can know Him. God has said, this is my word. This is how you will know me. This is how I want you to know me because I know your heart. How often it can be led astray. And you can create these different images of me that you want. But I want you to listen to my word. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He wants the people to understand him in light of God's word. And so, he gets a donkey. Doesn't that just just scream royalty? Right? He gets a donkey. It's not a war horse. It's a lowly donkey. You see, doesn't this show the picture that Jesus is not only the Isaiah 6 God who is high and exalted, the holy, holy, holy one, but he is also, as he says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, I am gentle and lowly. Jesus is very gentle and lowly. He is not either or, he's both and. Jesus knows what it means To lay down his life for his people. To bring them in. He's not going to pridefully lord it over his people. But he's coming to them on a donkey. And in the context of Zechariah 9. Because once again. If we're going to understand the New Testament. We need to understand the Old. So what Zechariah has actually been saying here in chapter 9. He says that there will be judgment upon Israel's enemies. In verse 4 of Zechariah 9. It says that the Lord will strip his enemies. He will strike them down. He will devour them with judgmental fire. Verse 8 talks about how the Lord will guard his people and no one shall march over them again. In verse 11, it talks about how the blood of the covenant will set the prisoners free. And in verse 12, it talks about how there will be a double restoration for God's people. But how is this going to happen? By riding in on a donkey. Not by self-exaltation as a great earthly king, but by self-sacrifice. That's how it's going to happen. See, Jesus very much is like the undercover boss. He seems to take on a disguise, as it were, from being the holy, holy, holy one as he takes on, f- on flesh. He's very normal. He looks like everyone else. You don't look at Jesus when he was a kid and you say, did you see how far he just, he just hit that baseball? That was amazing. That must be the son of God. That's not him. He's very normal. And he was actually almost so normal that he was not normal because he was very much to be overlooked. That's what Isaiah 53 says. He came on a donkey because he has not come to his people to say, you better believe me. He's come to his people so that he might wash their feet. He's gentle and lowly. And isn't that good news for some of you who feel like you can never be forgiven of the things that you've done? Jesus is gentle and lowly. He's coming on a donkey. This text here in verse 15, quoting Zechariah 9, 9, says, fear not. I love that. Because here's what Satan does. Satan will tempt us to abuse God's grace. And what he'll do is he'll downplay God's holiness. And he'll say, God and his law is not that big of a deal. Just live according to all your desires. You know, he's got grace for you. You can just get that later. And then you bite that sin and you like the fish that so gets hooked. You're hooked on that sin. And, and then what Satan does, he turns back around and he says, now God is no longer gracious, but he's only holy. You'll never find forgiveness in him. That's what Satan loves to do to us. But Jesus, he is holy, 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 but he is also gentle and lowly. And he welcomes us in. He doesn't welcome us in to tell us, now you better not do that ever again. He pronounces forgiveness and grace and love. You can't make this up. It was hard for his disciples. They were confused about this because they wanted this war horse king. But Jesus, if we could say it, he was a donkey type king. He had come to lay down his life, not to... Pridefully rule over others. You see, you might not understand this because one of the things you need to understand is actually you cannot believe this unless you are born again. Unless the Holy Spirit awakens your heart, you will never understand this. That's what it meant, where it says that the disciples did not understand these things until Jesus was glorified, meaning when he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit, and it was to show us that if we're really going to understand these things spiritually, you need the Holy Spirit. When you go out to evangelize in Stillwater, wherever you are, whether you're a professor or you're a student, you know, you, you make t-shirts, whatever it is, have confidence that you have the word of God. and God's word will stand. Amen? As you can have confidence. He's not the king we wanted. But he's the king we needed. Thirdly, we need to ask the question this, are we the covetous? You see, look at verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world is going after him. See, the crowds are gathering by the thousands as they surround Jesus. And here's what's interesting is that the Pharisees do not like this. Here's why. Because the Pharisees were a party in Judaism that had been formed to make sure Israel gets everything right. Because what we need to do, if God's going to bless us, we need to make all these rules. And if we follow these rules, then God will deliver us from our enemies. So in other words, what the Pharisees were doing is that as they're seeing people follow Jesus, they're covetous of Jesus, they're jealous of Jesus because they say, wait, we've been working on this for so long and now you're just going to follow this guy? They can't stand it. But we're often very similar. Because honestly, we don't like it when God gets the glory and we don't. We want the glory. We are often like Satan as it describes of him and. Isaiah 14 verses 13 through 14 where Satan fell from heaven because he desired the glory and he was prideful and we're more often like Satan and we hate thinking about God's sovereignty. We hate thinking about that, how God does everything in our salvation and we're just dead. We hate that because we want the glory. And that's the ultimate temptation for all sin. If you have this, you will be God. And God is restoring us so that we would say... I'm never going to be God. I'm going to trust Him. And that's a good place to be. It's so interesting how it says the world has gone after Him and you can't miss the irony here. Because in Genesis 12 and 15 when God made the promise to Abram, He said, look, your seed, your offspring will bring the world in. (laughs) It's happening. And the irony is that they're saying, All those worldly people are following Jesus. That's nothing. We get the really good people. The irony is this. It's proving the fact that Jesus really is the king. And he is gathering in the world. He is gathering in the riffraff. Welcome to the club. Okay. I don't know if I can be a Christian because Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. Well, that's that's what it says. Yeah. Because we have a great savior. He's working in us. He's not done. But if we want our glory, we won't see Him. We need to echo what Paul says in Romans 11.36 where he says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. See, Jesus isn't the king we want, but He is the king we need. It is interesting towards the end of... uh, The movie The Dark Knight, where it talks about Batman. Listen to listen to this. This is very interesting because he's it says this because he's the hero Gotham deserves, but not the hero it needs right now. So we'll hunt him down because he can take it. Because he's not our hero. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight. Here's what's so interesting is that they say this: he's the hero that we deserve, but he's not the hero. We need right now, and see the exact opposite is said about Jesus. He's not the hero you and I deserve. And that's what makes it amazing. Because if we cannot deserve Jesus, then we cannot lose Jesus. He gives himself to us all of grace. And he's the one we need. He's the one who took God's wrath for us so that we might be delivered from our sin. He's the one who defeated Satan on the cross so that we might win the battles. He's the one who's risen from the dead so that we might have life in him and that's the king you need to trust this morning because that's the king who is humble and lowly and he invites you and you will receive grace and mercy and victory in him let's pray heavenly father we thank you so much for the glory of this truth the glory of the gospel that jesus christ is victorious Father, I'm asking that you would grant us faith this morning. That we would believe that. And that we would not be like the crowds who just follow Jesus because it's easy. We ask that you would give us the Holy Spirit so that we might understand what your word is saying. we also ask that you would help us repent of seeking our own glory over yours. It help us look to him. in all the promises that are yes and amen in him. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.